there are two ways a beach can erode. One is minor erosion that comes from the continual movement of the waves onto the shore, carrying sand away, and over time in certain areas because of the currents, uh, the, the beach area can erode. Another way that a beach can erode is if, a, if something major hits that beach, like a hurricane or a tsunami, which brings great amounts of water onto the shore and takes great amounts of sand with it, that can cause major erosion. You say, Wade, why are you sharing that illustration? Because I believe over the past couple of decades, we have been experiencing as Christians in our nation a, a continual erosion of our religious liberty. It's been small and incremental, but it has been happening in our society. But I believe these last couple of years, the waves of erosion of our religious liberty have turned into a tsunami. And our freedom to to practice what we believe, to share and to state what we believe is coming under attack. And our religious liberty is quickly eroding. It's important to keep that in mind because we're going to study a passage of Scripture today that speaks to the issue of persecution. And when we study a passage like this in Acts chapter 6, it can seem very distant. Like this is not something we have to deal with. This is something they dealt with in the first century, but not something we have to deal with. But as you look at the landscape of our culture, what's happening uh, uh, to Christianity in America, and you look around the world, you see groups like Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab and ISIS and Al-Qaeda who are carrying out these attacks against Christians, this, this systematic, atrocious persecution. Uh, it, it's scary what's happening in our world presently today. And so this passage on persecution should have should have relevancy for us in this room. We're going to talk today about the startling reality, the startling reality of persecution. We'll be in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. We're going to begin reading in that verse and read down to the end of the chapter. We haven't been in Acts since February. We took a break from Acts to walk through a series titled Seven Sayings from the Cross. But now we're back in Acts and we're picking up right where we left off. The last time we were in Acts, early February, we preached Acts chapter 1, uh, 6, 1 through 7. Today we'll pick up in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. I want to ask you today if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. The Bible says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those, uh, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? And the remainder of chapter 7 is Stephen's answer to that question, which led to his martyrdom. But let's pray together before we jump into this passage today. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise and exalt you. God, you are a God of great majesty and splendor and glory. And it's such a privilege that through the shed blood of Christ, we have been brought into a relationship with you whereby we can call you Father. What a joy, Lord, not just to know about you, but to know you. And Lord, to have this opportunity to gather as a faith family and sing praises to your matchless name. And Lord, to to bow our hearts before you in these moments as you speak to us through your word. And I just pray that you would move, Lord, with power by your spirit. I pray that you would give me divine unction. I pray that you would anoint my, my preaching and you would anoint the hearers so that, Lord, our lives might be changed. Lord, we, we want to just put away business as usual. We want to we want to meet with you and we want to we want to grow in our relationship with you and we want to be transformed so we can go out of these walls and make a difference in other people's lives. And so God, would you move? Would you give us the grace just to just to exalt and lift up Jesus in these moments? For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He's alive today, and he's mighty to save. And after his resurrection, Jesus Christ spent some time on the earth appearing to different disciples, over 500 disciples. And then Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven. He went back to the right hand of the Father, and one day he will return. But after Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, we see in the book of Acts the description of the beginning of the New Testament church. On the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit fell on the disciples of Jesus, and they stood up and preached a powerful sermon in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people were saved, and a new church was started. And we see as we walk through Acts, the growth, the explosive growth of this new church, these followers of Christ as the gospel goes forward. But as the church grows, so does opposition to the church. And we see people rise up that want to stop this movement called the way. They want to stop this, this expansion of Christianity. And so we see intimidation and persecution begin to happen. And we've made it to Stephen, who is the first martyr of the church, where they actually kill someone for preaching about Jesus. Now, if you remember, last time we were in Acts chapter 6, we studied about the church organizing itself for efficiency. The apostle said, we need to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, and we need some people to help us with different ministries, ministry to widows. And so they had the church members name seven men that were of good reputation, Uh, who were men of uh, the Spirit, and they named seven men to be deacons to assist the apostles in the work of the ministry in that church. 
And after they name these seven men, it's interesting to note that in the next couple of chapters, we focus in on two of these deacons and the things that happen as a result of their ministry and their proclamation of the gospel. And so we're going to focus in on Stephen in the end of Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7. Then we'll get into Acts chapter 8 and talk about Philip and his remarkable ministry. But as we look at Stephen, we, we naturally think about persecution because his his desire to follow Christ, his desire to share Christ, his desire to proclaim the truth got him into lots of trouble. So here's how I want to begin this sermon. I want to begin this sermon with sort of a how-to message. I want to tell you how to avoid persecution. We're going to look at Stephen's example and we're going to learn how we can avoid persecution in our lives. So here's the first thing if you want to avoid persecution. You ready? Resist the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Resist the leadership of the Holy Spirit. If you want to avoid persecution, the Holy Spirit does not need to have control of your life. Because Stephen was a man who was led by the Spirit. Notice what it says here in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. The apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirits. They wanted the men they chose... Stephen was among those seven to be a man full of the Spirit. And look what it says in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great signs and wonders. Where did this power come from? This power to perform these miracles to accompany the preaching of the gospel. The power came from the Spirit of God who filled up his life. And then look what it says over in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. So it's clear that Stephen's life was was directed by the Holy Spirit of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And because of that, he got into all sorts of trouble. Because, listen, when the Holy Spirit has control, he will always lead you toward lostness. He will always lead you toward risky situations because there are people that need to hear about Jesus, right? And so if the Holy Spirit has control it's very likely he's going to lead you into encounters that make you uncomfortable and can be intimidating. So, if you want to avoid persecution, don't let the Holy Spirit have control, which, by the way, would be disobedient because over in Ephesians 5, the Bible says, be filled, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So the Christians are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. But if you want to disobey that command and not let the Spirit have control, then you can live a comfortable life with no problems. You can avoid persecution. Let me give you another way you can avoid persecution. Not only resist the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but live a life with no no Bible-based convictions. Live a life with no Bible-based convictions. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. It says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean that Stephen was a man full of faith? One of my favorite passages on faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews Hall of Faith, as it is called. And as you read that chapter, you see what real faith looks like. And, and, and you see a, 
an idea, a description of what faith really is emerge in that chapter. And here's my definition of faith. Faith is taking God at his word, believing what God says, and directing your life accordingly. Faith is taking God at his word and directing your life accordingly. That's what faith is. And Stephen was a man of faith. Stephen believed what God said. He believed the word of God. And he was willing to live according to what he believed. He had Bible-based convictions. And those convictions got him into hot water. Those convictions led him to stand for the truth even when the religious leaders were trying to get him to back away from the truth. So if you want to avoid persecution, you don't need to have Bible-based convictions because Bible-based convictions will be really unpopular in some avenues of society, many avenues of society. So the question becomes is, am I going to believe God's word and stand for what it says? Am I going to believe God's word and line my life up accordingly? Am I going to be a man or a woman of faith? Now, as I, as I survey the landscape of our nation, I see two major battlefields where Christians... Religious, biblical convictions are under fierce assault. One battlefield I see is the battlefield of the pro-life, pro-choice um, debate. And, and we know what that deals with. It deals with the issue of abortion. And as believers in the Bible, we say that life is sacred And abortion is a heinous evil. It is a sin. It is wrong. Over in Psalm 139, the Bible speaks of of, of a life being knit together in a mother's womb. It's a powerful passage. And, and, And the Bible says that my years were written in a book when I was still an unformed substance. An unformed substance. And yet God had a plan for my life. I believe that at the moment of conception, even though that substance may be unformed, may not look like a baby yet, at the moment of conception, that, that life is a person. And God has a plan for that life. And so as Bible-believing Christians, we stand for the sanctity of life. And, and people don't like that. And those convictions are coming under increasing assault in our culture today. But we've got to stand. We have no other, chance, uh, no other option. I was reading this weekend about a bill that was passed in the New York Assembly, the, the New York House of Representatives. It was not approved by the Senate to my knowledge. Praise the Lord. But in this, this bill passed by the New York House, they were basically protecting a woman's right to have an abortion all the way through the end of a nine-month pregnancy all the way through the third trimester. And they protected a procedure. Listen to this. They protected a procedure that allowed uh, to allow someone that wanted to uh, perform an abortion to inject poison into the baby's veins that would go to its heart and kill it. Now listen, that's not just disturbing. That's evil. And it's happening right here in our nation. And you might say, well, oh, wait, that, that's just, that's New York, and that, you know, that's the Northeast, and that's liberal folks, and that's Democrats. Well, let me tell you about the Republican House of Representatives. The Republicans have control of the House. And they were not able to pass a bill 
outlawing abortion in the third trimester. They couldn't get their act together and agree on a bill that would outlaw abortion in the third trimester of a woman's pregnancy, which means that the United States of America is one of four countries that allows abortion at that point. You want to know what the four countries are? Cuba, North Korea, Canada, and us. Those are the four countries that allow abortion at that point. Listen to me, friends. That is evil. And I want to be clear. Abortion in the third trimester is wrong. But so is abortion in the second trimester. And so is abortion in the first trimester. Any abortion after the moment of conception is a sin because we believe the Bible. And we believe in the sanctity of human life. But it's going to become increasingly unpopular to stand for those convictions. But if we don't stand, who's going to? The other major major battlefield I see in our culture today is in the area of sexual ethics. This anything goes mentality. And the idea here is that people want to do what they want to do. And not only do they want to do what they want to do, they want to silence you from saying it's wrong. And from believing that it's wrong. But as Christians, we know the Bible has spoken to this issue. And the Bible very clearly teaches, listen, very clearly teaches that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be enjoyed in the loving boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman, period. Anything that takes place outside of that is a sin. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, it is a sin. God is the creator He's given us his word to live by. He knows what's best for our lives. He made us, folks. He knows what's best for us. He knows those other behaviors, those sins outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman will destroy lives. So we believe in what the Bible says. We have convictions about sexual ethics because the Bible is so very clear. And if someone tells you the Bible is not clear on those issues, you need to run for that person because they are wrong and they are pursuing an ungodly agenda. But listen to me. Because we have Bible-based convictions, not only do we stand for the sanctity of life and for sexual intimacy to be enjoyed in the boundaries of a marriage between a man and a woman. But because we believe the Bible, we can also say there's forgiveness available for sinners. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died for our sins. So if anyone from any of those different situations, they, they, maybe they've, they've uh, had an abortion, or, or maybe they've, they've uh, practiced uh, sex outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Listen to me. If anyone repents of their sin and runs to Jesus, they will find his grace and his mercy and his compassion. And we believe that because we believe the Bible. And so while we hold to our convictions, we also point people to the compassion of Christ. But we can't back down. But understand that if you want to avoid persecution, you just don't have any convictions. Anything goes. Believe what you want to believe. Do what you want to do. Anything goes. And if you have that kind of belief system, you'll avoid any hardship. Third, if you want to avoid persecution, avoid lost people. Don't get around lost folks. Look what it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was around the people. And then it says in the next verse, those, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, 
rose up and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen was preaching to folks in a certain synagogue. It's called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, which probably means that Jews from other nations who were at one time slaves were freed from their slavery, and they journeyed back to Jerusalem to live. When they got there, a group of them started a new synagogue, and so it became known as the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And somehow Stephen has a relationship with him. Stephen's a Hellenistic Jew, speaks Greek, and so probably he's the one that's able to engage with these Greek-speaking Jews from other nations, and he has a, a dispute with them about truth. But notice, he's around people that need to hear about Jesus. And because he's around people that need to hear about Jesus, Stephen gets into all sorts of trouble. All sorts of trouble. And so if you want to avoid persecution, avoid lost people. Next, if you want to avoid persecution, tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now that word disputed in the Greek language means that there was a two-sided dispute going on. Those in the synagogue would have their say, and then Stephen would answer them back. And Stephen would answer them back with truth, truth concerning Jesus Christ. And instead of Stephen telling them what they wanted to hear, he told them what they needed to hear, and it infuriated the religious leaders. It made them angry and eventually led to his death. So if you want to avoid persecution, just tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Listen, what do people need to hear? They need to hear that we're all sinners separated from God. That our only hope is Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be forgiven. He's the only way to be saved. And when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, He demands ownership of your life. It will change the way you live. That's what people need to hear. But if you want to avoid hardship, just tell people what they want to hear. You're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. Right? Works for some TV preachers. Tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Here's the next thing. If you want to avoid persecution, pose no threat to the status quo or to the kingdom of darkness. Pose no threat to the status quo or to the kingdom of darkness. Notice what it says in verse 11. Then, after Stephen disputes with them, they could not withstand his wisdom. Then, They secretly instigated men who trumped up false charges against him, and they brought him in on these false charges. The word then is important. Because they could not get him to back down, because they could not keep him from proclaiming Christ, because they could not refute his arguments, they adopted another strategy. Then they began to pursue persecution to silence Stephen. By persecution, I mean intimidation, defamation of character, and eventually physical violence. That was their plan because Stephen was a threat to their religious status quo and to the kingdom of darkness. And so they persecuted Stephen. So I've given you some some how-tos. These are some things that will help you to avoid persecution. Now hopefully you've noticed that I'm doing this tongue-in-cheek. Because... This leads us to a very important question. This is in your text, in your notes. The question is this. Should we seek to avoid persecution? Should we seek to avoid persecution? Now now here's the answer. For true Christ followers that believe the Bible, stand for truth, and are on mission with Jesus, avoiding persecution is not an option. If you follow Christ, if you... Proclaim truth, 
If you stand on the truth of God's word, if you are doing what Jesus has told you to do, you will experience hardship. The Bible teaches that. And so the only way, listen, the only way we can avoid persecution is to be unfaithful to Jesus, and that should not be an option, amen? should be an option. And so this idea of avoiding persecution is not something we should even consider. Instead, we need to follow Jesus and rest on some promises, some things he's told us about persecution. So I want us to just spend the rest of this sermon, just very quickly, walking you through some biblical truths concerning persecution. Some things to keep in mind as we see increasing hostility around the world against Christians and as we see the heat turned up on Christians here in this nation. Number one, we should not be surprised by persecution. We should not be surprised by persecution. If you are boldly following Christ, it's going to make it difficult for you. And Jesus told us this. Over in John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, listen, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they persecuted the head of the church, Jesus Christ, they're also going to persecute the body of, the, of Christ, the church, right? It's going to happen. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Bible says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that? If you're desiring to live godly, if the Bible is affecting the way you live your life, if the Spirit is controlling you and changing you and empowering you and guiding you, then listen, you will be persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. It should not catch us off guard. But here's another truth about persecution you need to understand. Those who persecute you will not be able to withstand your spirit-filled proclamation. Over in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, it says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, this results from a promise that Jesus made. As a matter of fact, turn over to Luke chapter 21 with me. I want to show you what Jesus said about his followers that are encountering persecution. Luke chapter 21, verse 15. He's saying, when you find yourself persecuted, he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In other words, when you find yourself in an intimidating circumstance, an intimidating situation, you think, I don't know what I'll say. If you are being controlled by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God is filling up your life, He will give you the words you need in that moment. That's a promise from Jesus, right? So don't wring your hands What will I say? What will I do? If you're following Jesus, if the Spirit has control, He'll give you the words you need. Third, God will be with you in the midst of persecution. He'll be with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Over in Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And He says, I am with you always even unto the end of the age. As you go forth and make disciples and it takes you down difficult roads, no, I'll never leave you alone. I'll always be with you. And we see this back in Acts chapter 6. Turn to Acts 6. I want to show you this very quickly. Verse 15, this is fascinating. It says, when they bring Stephen in to question him, it says, 
Gazing at him, Acts 6.15, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What's that about? They bring Stephen in and his face is, is supernaturally glowing. What, what's, what's that about? Well, here's what John Stott writes. He writes, It is surely significant that the council, gazing at the prisoner in the dock, should see his face shining like an angel's. For this is exactly what happened to Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law. Was it not God's deliberate purpose to give the same radiant face to Stephen when he was accused of opposing the law as he had given to Moses when he received the law? In this way, God was showing that both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen's interpretation of it had his approval. Indeed, God's blessing on Stephen is evident throughout. He writes, The grace and power of his ministry, his irresistible wisdom, and his shining face were all tokens that the favor of God rested upon him. So this shining face shows God was with him in this moment. And you need to understand, if following Jesus takes you down some difficult pathways and into some difficult, risky, dangerous situations, you need to understand that Jesus has promised that he will be with you. But there's something else you need to understand about persecution. Two more things. There's a reward for encountering and enduring persecution. If you go through it and you endure it, there's a reward. Over in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus begins that wonderful sermon with the Beatitudes, he says in verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, if you find yourself being persecuted, rejoice. Because God sees what you're enduring for his sake and for his glory. And he will reward it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-14 through 14 say this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. So, so Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you are insulted and reviled and mistreated for the sake of Jesus, there's blessing in that because God's glory and His Spirit rest upon you in a special way. So there's reward when you obey Jesus, even if it causes difficulty. Everything we do for the glory of Christ is seen by God, and God will reward us. But here's the final thing, and the most important thing you need to understand about persecution. Because it's going to happen if we faithfully follow Christ. Here it is, you ready? Our victory is assured. Let me say it like this. If you are a follower of Christ, you're on the winning team. Our victory is assured. And our victory is assured for two reasons. First, because persecution does not accomplish what its perpetrators want it to accomplish. In other words, persecution happens because people want to stop the advance of Christianity. But it never works. Every time someone tries to stomp out Christianity like a forest fire, it just spreads. And, and persecution never works. Let me show you this in the Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. 
Spoiler alert, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen dies by stoning, all right? We'll get to that in a few weeks. But notice in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now fast forward down to verse 4. I love this. It's almost funny. Now those who were scattered by persecution went about preaching the word. <laughs> so they try to stop it and intimidate, and, and, the, and the Christians are, 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 are sent to different areas. They go to different areas, and yet they go preaching the word. So they try to stop Christianity in Jerusalem. Christianity spreads to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Persecution doesn't work. It doesn't. That's why we know our victory is assured. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Over in Matthew 24, Jesus said, He said, The gospel will be preached to all the nations of the earth and then the end will come. In other words, Jesus said prophetically that every people group on the face of the earth will hear the gospel. No matter what the persecutors try to do, it's going to happen. It's a done deal. But here's the second reason our victory is assured. Jesus Christ will return to defeat his enemies and reign forever. I've given you some scriptures there, but at the end of time, Jesus Christ will return and he'll come as a warrior. And he will put down every enemy of the cross. And he will gather his children, the church, and we will step into eternity with our victorious Savior and Lord, the King of kings, the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ, right? He's going to come back and set everything right. He will defeat his enemies. So even though there may be times of bleakness in today's time, know that one day Jesus Christ is coming back to set it all straight. And if you know Jesus, if you are saved, if you're a follower of Christ, you're on the winning team. Our victory is assured. So don't give up. Don't give in to intimidation. Don't back away from the the truths of the Bible. Follow Jesus. Share the gospel. Let the Spirit of God control you and fill you and empower you and guide you. And know that God can greatly use your life. He can greatly use our church in these troubling days. So there is a startling reality to persecution. But there is a wondrous victory for the persecuted. And we can trust that Jesus Christ will one day come back victorious. So here's the point of it all. True Christians will follow Jesus anywhere he leads. Did you, did you hear me? True Christians will follow Jesus anywhere he leads. And that means we will encounter hostility for the sake of Christ. But when it's all said and done, Jesus and his followers will triumph. So don't be discouraged. Don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he wants to use us mightily to reach this world for Christ. But understand that when you follow Jesus, there will be a cost. You know, the unreached people groups, the unengaged, unreached people groups in this world that have never heard the gospel or been engaged with a gospel witness they can understand in their culture, in their language, they're unreached for a reason. They live in very difficult areas to get to and very 
sometimes hostile situations for believers in Christ. But if we're going to get the gospel to the lost and dying, to every unreached people group on this earth, it means we're going to follow Jesus down some very difficult roads. But guess what? Jesus wins.